I'm back with Caitlin and Alan, and Miss Me Yet is the title, and Alan has the story for that. Trump returning, the joys of Trump coming back. Yes, there's a very long uh, two-piece, two-part series on uh, um, the Trump uh, Trump campaign's plans to uh, restore itself to power come 2024. These are articles written by Jonathan Swan at Axios. And um, based on about three dozen different sources, many of whom are anonymous, Swan has uh, painted a, a very impressive portrait of what the Trump world types are doing to prepare Trump for his coming presidency or a return to the presidency. Uh, if you think back to 2016, when Trump was first elected, one of the problems the first Trump administration had was um, they didn't really have any political organization. And uh, they, didn't, they certainly didn't have much of a um, uh, relationship with the many think tanks that are feeders or pipelines to the many, many um, uh, academics and uh, thought leaders and uh, would-be political appointees that are needed to make an administration run. So it took them a very long time to get up and running. But um, this time they are preparing for it well in advance. And it's a very interesting situation because whenever there's a new administration, the new president gets to appoint about 4,000 different people to uh, these political appointments. However, the layer below that are all long-term government employees. And there are, of course, millions of federal employees out there. Um, and only about 4,000 of them are actually political employees. All the rest of them are just doing a day job. The deep state. The deep state, exactly. And so what the Trump administration finally figured out in 2020, before the 2020 presidential election, was that they we're getting too much pushback from these longtime federal employees. You know, these are people who are interested in upholding the law. These are people working at the Justice Department who do not want the president to break the law. You know, that kind of a quote unquote obstructionism by Traders the, and rhinos. Yes, yes, that's right. Democrats and rhinos and Cucks. people who are not on the Trump train. Right. So, what the Trump uh, administration did was create what they call Schedule F, or an executive order called Schedule F, which did not get the attention it should have, but it allowed the Trump administration to turn 50,000 federal employees into political appointees, with um, the plan to not fire all 50,000 or replace all 50,000. But if somebody was getting to be a little difficult for the Trump agenda, then they could just fire that person. So this Axios article looks into the different individuals and groups that are involved in this larger Trump world effort to develop a pipeline and identify people who can take on these roles in the forthcoming Trump administration of 2024. And um, a lot of it's just, you know, political insider gossip stuff, but a lot of it's very interesting too, to see who is up and who is down in Trump world. Um, figures like Stephen Miller and Kash Patel are definitely up 
while others like Ivanka and Jared Trump or Jared Kushner are out, interestingly. Well, Ivanka betrayed him. If, yes, that's right. And Trump is not happy about that. So apparently Ivanka has, has been pretty much shut out from Trump world now. Yeah. Um, of course, she was only trying to save her own hide. So Trump should understand that. She, he should understand that intimately. Since when would he understand anything like that? Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a very long uh, couple of articles, but it's a very interesting portrait on what's happening inside of uh, not only Trump world, but uh, the, let's call it the uh, political consulting class that also goes into creating governments. And Trump world has appropriated a lot of the old guard um, institutes and think tanks like the Heritage Foundation yeah. that um, had been very anti-Trump, but now it appears that they're very much on board. And um, there's been an ideological shift within the Heritage Foundation. Well, you know, I think this stuff is reflecting, as a lot of it does, a real truth, which is that the president actually doesn't have much power in our system. And um, this is something Bill Barr had a whole, his wing of the Republicans had a whole theory of the imperial presidency where they ought to fix that by making the presidency more like a king where he can do whatever he wants. So, I mean, is this stuff, there is a plan, a larger scale plan behind this kind of thinking. Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned this imperial style thinking because it does appear that um, Trump really does want to rule that way. And yeah, he like, be like Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin. He wants to just yes. be an absolute ruler. He has talked about doing away with the two-term limit yeah. for presidents. Um, and, I, and interviews of Republican supporters now show that more than half of them really don't care about democracy or term limits or anything, and they think just Trump as an emperor would be fine. Yes, there is a very strong current of autocratic thinking and support in American society. And this was before Trump was mm -hmm. elected president, too. So this shouldn't actually come as a huge surprise, even though it does still. Yeah. Yeah, it's very much like the war between the states. Yes. There's a huge fundamental difference between the northern and the southern view of these things. All right. And Caitlin's got collusion. Uh, well, actually, I got some dirt on Amazon, some very real dirt in the form of soot and carbon emissions. <laughs> so uh, The Verge has an article written by Justine Kalma. Thank you, Justine. Uh, talking about how Amazon has increased their carbon output by 18% uh, in 2021 compared to 2020. Now, this is a, a kind of a big deal because in uh, 2019, Amazon pledged to be carbon neutral by 2040. And they were going to lead the way to being a you know sustainable green company and uh, hope, hope that others would follow suit. But that is not happening, as one could imagine, especially with a company like Amazon that has fleets of vehicles, fleets of aircraft, well, that, but in 2019, I think they didn't have those fleets. I think they were using like UPS or something. No, they they had Amazon delivery in 2019. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but yeah, uh, in 2019, they said they were going to be net zero and by 2040. And one of the issues is that they're using carbon offsets, which is very misleading because basically what it means is that they can pollute all they want, but on paper you know, they offset their pollutions by, you know, planting trees and stuff, which actually does not 
you know, fix the problem whatsoever. But on paper, it looks like they're being very green. But in reality, as I as I mentioned, their pollution has actually gone up by double digits in one year alone. But if you really plant the trees, doesn't it help? I mean, not, not apparently not really, uh, according to this article. Okay. Um, I mean, it's it's not that it doesn't help, and we shouldn't be we should be planting trees for sure. But it's not a, you know, you can pollute X amount if you plant X amount of trees. Like it doesn't balance out that way. Like there's still an equilibrium uh, not being met. <laughs> okay. No matter how many trees you you plant, for example. So. Well, now I must object from a logical. Simple principle, if you planted a million trees and drove your car five miles, that would have to be, there must be a number of trees that would compensate for some amount of exhaust. I mean, if you are a large company like Amazon with fleets of aircraft and constantly making deliveries and gas vehicles, I mean, that would be a lot of trees. Well, that's the thing. Where are yeah. you going to find the land upon it? We'll handle those yeah. trees. And, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they said, quote, uh, as we work to decarbonize our company, Amazon is growing rapidly. We have scaled our business at an unprecedented pace to help meet the demands uh, of our customers through the pandemic. And that's what it said in the sustainability report. Um, but of course, they made a lot of money during the pandemic. <laughs> um, they, they are, you know, they're, whenever a large company, you know, claims to put the environment first, you know, don't trust them. Um, large companies put the shareholders first. Yeah, of course, they might make net zero by 2040 because by then their whole fleet will be electric and such. Maybe, we'll see. It's just, it's not, they're they're not leading the way though. And as far as um, emissions are concerned, they are not, they are, they are heavy polluters. And yeah. hopefully this, hopefully the fact that this is getting out will spur action on their part to reduce emissions, but we'll see. Yeah. But to be fair, you ought to compare it to their actual rate of growth of revenue or number of packages, which I think has grown a lot more than that. That's probably true. Although I don't think it's a one-to-one -one ratio, especially because of the way that package logistics works, where you have packages going to like main distribution points. Mm -hmm. And it's only really the last mile that things sort of diversify, but it's not going to, that last mile is, I, I doubt the majority of the carbon being produced. I would have thought it's the most, but it'd be interesting to find out how much it is. Yeah. yeah. All right. And so there's another big hack of web three. Nomad is uh, one of these exchanges between um, chains. I think I'm not quite sure what it is, but they lost $150 million in a truly impressive attack um, where they uploaded, um, so they try to make sure that you're authorized to withdraw funds. And they had an upload and a commit where they declared a new variable, which is the authorization key. And apparently to avoid uninitialized variables, it is traditional when adding a new variable to smart contracts to initialize it at zero. And they forgot to ever set it to anything else. So if you were completely unauthorized to perform a transaction, the value of the uh, calculation would be zero and therefore it matches. So now every transaction of every kind is approved. So somebody stole a bunch of money and then a whole bunch of other people found out that you could just replay one of the transactions right on Etherscan and just change the destination address to yours and get money. And people, the total, much more, there's a total of like 290 million to steal and it's pretty much all been stolen. And a whole bunch of those second wave of people just used their public wallets that are connected publicly to their real name. So it's not entirely clear how they think they're going to get away with it. 
Um, this is sort of like when somebody throws a brick through the window and then everybody in the neighborhood just runs in and starts grabbing stuff. Anyway, it's uh, truly impressive. Um, another disaster from people not bothering to secure their Web3 contracts. And um, there's another article that I saw at some tweet stream where they have a real looking, um, a real link to a real arrest warrant. But the part that they don't back up is that this person that got arrested was a banker for Bitfinex, the company that mentions Tether. And Tether has had a huge problem um, connecting to the banking system because Tether has claimed that there's their uh, stablecoin, which I think the number one stablecoin in the world, Tether, is tied to a reserve of $1 per coin. And they hired real accountants like PricewaterhouseCoopers or one of the big ones to do that. And they never gave them the data. And after a while, they just resigned and said, we don't certify this. As far as we can tell, they don't really have it backed up. And so they've had this really shady relationship with shady bankers. And apparently one of their bankers in the past was this guy who they arrested with just sheets of $100 bills he was printing. He was just printing counterfeit money. <laughs> which is not that far from making tether. So anyway, uh, it's, it's, this is one of the disasters that hasn't yet happened, which I've been waiting to happen for like five years, is when tether collapses. When their stablecoin goes down, that would really destabilize a lot of the uh, web uh, blockchain-based economy. But for some reason, that hasn't happened, despite all the enormous red flags surrounding tether. And uh, if it haven't gone down yet, I think maybe they won't go down. But anyway... Um, it's yet another red flag warning you that the people you're dealing with in, in cryptocurrency tend to be very, very, very suspicious, very untrustworthy people. And Alan's got social capital. Yes, uh, a very interesting study, a very large scale study that confirms the old adage that it's not what you know, it's who you know. Researchers, and when I see researchers, it looks like about two dozen researchers were granted access to Facebook and Facebook's absolutely enormous trove of user information. And they looked at uh, over 70 million Americans between the ages of 24 and 44 or something like that and uh, basically plotted out all of their social relationships and also looked at their social, uh, socioeconomic mobility. And what they found was that um, if you are coming from a lower income, lower socioeconomic, socioeconomic background, the best way for you to raise your status is by having uh, richer friends. And this often happens in the context of school. And so um, it depends on zip codes, it depends on neighborhoods, it depends on schools. It also depends on the degree of integration within those spaces. So uh, for example, busing has been used for now decades in the US in an attempt to uh, create uh, greater opportunities and to reduce um, socioeconomic disparity. But the effect of busing has been mixed at best, the success of it. Um, but what this study finds is that if people uh, actually have real social bonds, strong social networks, that they're not just simply bust into a different space, but they uh, actually gain some kind of 
uh, membership in a social context, friendships, etc., then those relationships actually lead to measurably a greater uh, economic opportunities for people to the tune of about 20%. Um, and so if this study is borne out by further research, then that could have immense consequences for uh, social policy in America because so much of social policy in America is at least nominally geared towards trying to uh, foster greater integration and greater opportunity for people. And yet so many of those efforts really seem not to amount to very much. Uh, and uh, after all, it's worth remembering that America has far greater levels of disparity, economic disparity, and far less mobility, socioeconomic mobility than many other countries, uh, yeah. especially in Europe. Interestingly, Northern European countries have generally much greater degrees of socioeconomic mobility than the US. So if Americans are actually interested and serious about uh, creating true opportunity for all, then uh, research of this kind may well help inform uh, policy in the future. I wonder what the intervention should be because I've lived through all the uh, from the '60s on, and all the interventions seem to be putting politically correct terms in children's textbooks that didn't really accomplish anything. Well, that's a long discussion for another time. Yeah, but. Um, there are many aspects to this, and uh, it's, it's worth remembering that even the term politically correct has been co-opted by its detractors in an attempt to discredit any attempt or any effort to um, change the cultural systems that produce and reproduce um, systemic racism, for example. And it can be done skillfully. I, I mean, that's what Dr. Seuss did. Well, Dr. Seuss is also kind of a, uh, let's say, a flashpoint character. Mm -hmm. I think it's best to discuss it in the most abstract terms. Um, first of all, uh, is it a worthwhile goal to, say, eliminate racism? Well, right now, we're certainly not in agreement on that at all. How so? Oh, I mean, I think I think the Republicans have made it very clear with their embrace of Victor Orban and stuff. They do not want to be a multicultural democracy. Oh, well, that's absolutely they want, true. They want yes. white power. I mean, yes. so I think I think the the only half of the society wants this goal. Yes, this is very very true. Yeah, and but then I think even if we did agree we wanted it, we don't know how to do it. Right. I I I kind of want to circle back to the idea of political correctness because I think that is something that gets that has been co-opted and we don't really talk about how it's been co-opted co enough. So the term political correctness comes from the idea. And it, it's, I, it was from some book and I don't think it was 1984. It might've been, I don't know. Uh, but the, the, the term originally meant that something didn't have to be factually correct, but it could be politically correct. Meaning it's, it's not true, but it's what we need to say. I think it uh, comes from red China, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's that's where it comes from. And unfortunately, it's been co-opted to mean being polite, essentially, like not using, you know, harmful stereotypes, you know, being politically correct, not not calling people terrible names and stuff. And and that's 
And that is such a, a terrible bastardization of political correctness. Uh, it's not, yeah, of yeah, political correctness because it's it's not about it's no the white the right and and detractors of you know PC culture have taken something that is very well defined, uh, very much uh, a, a problem in politics where people just come up with their own facts and spin it as truth decry people who want to be polite as being the ones who are truly being politically correct. Meanwhile, we have like QAnon people supporting political figures and, you know, and and the political figures, you know, supporting them like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are literally being politically correct and saying things that aren't factually true, but appeal to the base. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the big issue here is um, social sanctions to enforce conformity to social conventions. And I think we have the left pushing towards a more open society where you should be considerate of people who are different than yourselves and the right pushing for a society where everybody is forced to be a traditional, what they see as leave it to beaver, proper Christian family. And anybody deviating from that is wrong. And they, they, I think they both kind of agree in these social sanctions and trying to force people into a mold of some sort, but they disagree on the mold. Um, I would have to think about that, Sam. I, I think that I think there's a big difference between treating people politely and, you know, imposing like Christian values, for example, like expecting everyone to be Christian. Well, I think both of them see themselves as uh, having the correct amount of politeness, condemning people that are wrong and holding up people that are right is a good example. They just completely have an inverted sense of which people are wrong, which people are right. I, I, you could say that you could be a complete moral relativist and say, you know, what, you know, just because, you know, who's, who's really right. You know, the Nazis, for example, and um, I'm being very literal. I'm not, I'm not, this is, I'm not God winning anyone, but the Nazis would say, or the white supremacists would say mm-hmm. that they are quite moral for, yeah. you know, up for maintaining, you know, white supremacy and for making sure that, you know, they're saving the white race from white genocide, you know, that's, stuff like that. That's and, exactly it. Yes. And, and so, you know, you could say, well, you know, everyone's, you know, equally right in their own way. And, and I disagree. I very much disagree. I think that, sure. that there are bad takes. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I don't have sympathy for their cause, but I, yeah. but um, anyway, all right. Well, uh, then let's go on to China with a good power oh, grid, better yeah, than the, the one in Texas, apparently. Yeah, no, no, t- no. China's apparently killing it on the power grid. Uh, so w- one of the common topics we've been talking about on this podcast has been interesting uses of artificial intelligence and machine learning and Here's a great use of machine learning that I didn't even think about, but totally makes sense. Uh, let me, sh- none. oh, there we go. It works. Ha-ha. What do you know? I know how to use technology. Uh, the South China Morning Post uh, has an article written by Stephen Chen um, talking about China's AI power grid. So what's going on? Uh, well, the power grid in certain parts of China it has sensors flowing to machine learning algorithms. And when there's a fault in the power grid, what normally happens is that all these error codes get sent to the main control center. And then engineers have to go over the 
error codes, figure out what happened and how to resolve the situation. And this can take hours. And we've all been through blackouts. We, we know how this works. So you just wait for the power to come back on and things work. Well, the idea is that the machine learning would read the error codes and come up with solutions within seconds rather than hours uh, to restoring power if there is a power, if the power goes down. Uh, and the reason why this is, I, I guess, is, is a difficult problem to solve is that it's very likely a traveling salesman problem where you have grid connected to grid connected to grid. Um, and the way, so for people that aren't very familiar with large scale you know, power distribution, uh, you usually have a large plant, uh, like a solar plant, for example, uh, producing, you know, a lot, uh, very high voltage electricity. And you want really high voltage because you have to send it a very long way away to where your customers are. And if it is lower voltage, you need to use very thick wires that becomes improbably expensive. <laughs> you know, you can't afford that. So they, they have these high voltages coming from the generators. They go to these transformer substations. We've all seen them. Uh, that knock it down to like 10,000 volts, uh, which then go to, which then travels around the city grid to your local little like um, on the block substation, which then knocks it down to 110 volts or 220 volts if you're in other countries. Um, and so it's just a, it's, 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 yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's like we were talking earlier with Amazon where they have like these main distribution centers sort of the same idea. Uh, and it's just like the last mile where it actually converts to what you would use in your house. Um, and at every transformer station, uh, there is uh, a measuring transformer. So the power comes in, it goes to another transformer on its way out uh, that takes measurements and it can send that data back through the, either the, the wires themselves. You can actually do that. You can use the, the backbone the, of the power grid to send data back from the transformer, um, uh, from the transformer plants as well as, I mean, there are many different ways you can send data back, but they get the data back um, and it, it will say the status of the, you know, transformers or you know, whether or not they're getting power, whether there's a fault in one of the transformers. Um, it's very common, for example, for a transformer to overheat. Um, and that can cause that big transformer plant to go down. Um, and then power would have to be rerouted from somewhere else uh, to cover that area that the transformer, you know, no longer functions at. Uh, well, the idea with this AI is that it would detect that fault, automatically know where to, you know, reroute the the power from, and then throw everything back up. And like I said, it does sound a lot like the traveling salesman problem, which is why machine learning is a great solution uh, to automating. Um, uh, resolutions to power fa failures. Yeah, it sounds great. I mean, I think the fundamental problem with the electrical power grid is unlike Amazon, they can't store the stuff. You have to meet instantaneous demand right away. That is only partially true. Uh, there are, well, I, I will say that there are like matching capacitors and stuff like that, but I don't think that really counts. Um, uh, but there are large batteries involved uh, when generating power and at uh, lots of transformer plants uh, so that if there is a sudden surge, they can meet it really quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but the problem is, is that you need a constant circuit yeah. at all times. Uh, it, it's not a matter of storing power. Uh, I mean, generally, yeah. I mean, yeah, if you could, if you could get giant batteries at your house, like you have a big solar system set up, 
like the Tesla wall. Like the Tesla wall. Um, if the if a line goes down, you can still have that power in your house because you can, you know, yeah, that that line's not broken. Um, so it's not really a matter of storing power outside of your home. It's a matter of making sure that the transformers are operating. Like there's a huge system in place to go from the generator uh, to your home. And every component needs to work properly in order for that to happen. And you can't have any faults. So you the there's the long wires everyone knows about, everyone's seen. And then there's the distribute, then there's your local neighborhood um, transformer, which is usually a, a kind of a eh, yay refrigerator size, small refrigerator size box with a bunch of you know transformers in it that needs to work, you know, perfectly all the time. Um, and then that has to connect to a larger transformer distribution plant which once again has to work perfectly all the time. And these things take like almost an entire city block sometimes worth of equipment um, and, you know, various you know, components that can go wrong really easily <laughs> um, and overheat a lot. And so the way that they usually deal with this, they have like AC systems uh, running oil over the, uh, like the transformers. And so if you ever hear large like fans and stuff at a transformer plant, it's usually the transformers themselves and their AC systems that have to be running all the time. And if the AC systems bust and how many of us have ever worked with a busted AC system, you know, you know, that could go down and then suddenly the whole transformer plant has to get shut down. You know, every single piece has to work to get power from the generator to your home. And if anything fails, then you get a blackout. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. And so Crown Sterling is back. Two or three years ago at Black Hat, this company called Crown Sterling gave a talk on cryptography that made no sense at all. And all the serious cryptographers in the audience protested loudly and got very angry and said, you need to throw these people out of the conference and you should never have approved their presentation anyway. Now they're back suspiciously just a week or two before Black Hat. Maybe they got back in Black Hat again with another bunch of complete garbage cryptography. The, for one, the first one I saw people tweeting about that I looked at is their one-time pad encryption. Now, if you really had a one-time pad, that would be great. But of course, the distribution problem is off. So what they've done is they've decided all you have to do is have an irrational number and then express it in decimal. It will create this series of non-repeating numbers and they're going to call that a one-time pad. But the problem is, I mean, in principle, it's a series of numbers. And if you could reproduce it at the other end, you'd have a series of numbers. But the problem is, it's not clear that nobody could guess it or reproduce it. That's the hard part you have to do. I mean, that's, and it's also not clear that it has the, the right kind of statistics for one-time pad. But anyway, that's their idea. They have another idea on their webpage I see here, which is the one they took to Black Hat, which is that they can somehow... Um, find prime factors very quickly. They had some bogus system of doing that that would break RSA that didn't make any sense. And they've still got that up. And now they got a new one, which is truly mind boggling. It goes like this. You have a quantum VPN, then you encrypt your device, then you NFT your data, and then you tell it to data exchange. And this is just what all their stuff is. It is a bunch of all the hot buzzwords connected together with pretty looking graphics and enough technical mathematical terms thrown in the middle to hopefully confuse you long enough that they can get away with your money before you realize you've been had. And anyway, so I, if they do take this garbage to Black Hat, which I kind of expect there'll be some more fireworks coming as all the serious cryptographers in the world rage against it again. But anyway, uh, 
it made for a lot of entertainment a couple of years ago when they last brought this out and they're back again, the snake oil salesmen of cryptography. What I'd like to know is how they're able to get into Black Hat again and again. That's, that's the most impressive part of their engineering. Well, I'm not sure they're in Black Hat again. I'm just assuming from the timing, I guess we'll find out. That was the, the big issue last time. Why, how did these guys ever get through their view process? Because their stuff is so patently ridiculous. Um, I don't know. And I've heard that if you pay enough money, you can basically do an infomercial at Black Hat. And that was the argument. Oh. They said you shouldn't even accept money from crooks like this. And, you know, I think it depends on their review board and stuff. So I don't know. But uh, we'll see. If they actually get in Black Hat, there'll be some more uh, uh, excitement coming out of this. Although I saw a tweet yesterday I thought was very good. They said, you know, Black Hat is not requiring masks, just like RSA. It's going to be a super spreader event, just like RSA. And they said, you know, tell your boss you decided to go to B-Sides instead, where they are requiring masks. Mm. Sounds like a good idea to me. And I'm glad because I was going to go to B-Sides. And if they require masks, I'll be a lot more happy to be there. Anyway. All right. And, and Alan, you've got the uh, interactive core memory. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, uh, a couple of things. First of all, this weekend will be the Vintage Computer Festival West at uh, the Computer History Museum. So if you're really interested, really interested in the vintage computer scene uh, and you wanna buy some stuff or you just wanna hear and learn about more, um, you can go to that. Or if you've always wanted your very own ferrite core memory, you can build your own thanks to the Core 64 kit. Um, ferrite core, for those who are unfamiliar, is the really old RAM and ROM technology that computers used. This was back in the 60s and I think into the 70s, into the early 70s, and then was subsequently abandoned. Um, and the way these ferrite core memory systems work is, is really cool, actually. They're, they're composed of these tiny, tiny little donut-shaped magnets that are uh, woven together with a uh, lattice of, uh, or I guess I shouldn't use lattice because of its use in, in mathematics, but woven together with wires, copper wires. And it's possible to flip the polarity of those magnets. And when you flip it one way, the magnet is a zero. Flip it the other way, it's a one. So every single one of these little magnets, donut-shaped magnets, represents either a one or a zero in memory, um, which is a, a cool concept. And this is what was used on the Apollo. And you know, was, this was state-of-the-art, um, except that somebody has to manually assemble these racks and racks of, of little donut-shaped uh, magnets and wires. It's a process called weaving. And uh, companies used to employ a lot of weavers, people, to do all this assembly work. And these magnets are tiny, tiny, tiny little things. Anyway, if you want to have the joys and frustration of doing that yourself, you can buy this Core 64 kit for the low price of $180. It's all sold out. And this kit um, has some nice updated features like uh, Teensy, the Arduino-derived Teensy, um, and some uh, uh, LED backlights and a stylus. And uh, you can program this yourself to do all kinds of nifty little things. So I personally have always wanted to have 
these, this ferrite core, magnetic core uh, memory myself, but uh, those are hard to come by and very expensive. Uh, so now you can buy your own. It's brand new and only sli slightly less expensive. And you get a whopping 64 bits of memory. 64 bits of memory. Yes. Yeah, well, can't argue with that. No, it's a great deal. No, and I was just on Twitter again defending my COBOL class, you know, which I, I think is about if to even be earlier than that. <laughs> yeah. Well, if the supply chain keeps having the issues that it's having, we might actually be using those in our computers. I don't know. 64 bits. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Um, all right. And so uh, Caitlin's got uh, more space junk. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with Australia, but they've been hit by a lot of space junk. So um, the uh, ABC, Australian ABC uh, News uh, has an article written by Adrian Reardon talking about how there's a bunch of more space junk being found all over sort of Australia's uh, mountain regions. Uh, and apparently it's all coming from SpaceX recently that uh, I, I thought SpaceX would, you know, largely keep track of the debris and make sure that it, you know, goes down in a relatively unpopulated area. And I, I guess you could argue that the middle of someone's farm, <laughs> you know, in, in Australia is largely unpopulated, but still that's. That's a bit concerning. And these are large pieces of, of space junk. And I imagine there are things from like the fairings. Uh, so in order to protect the spacecraft while it's going up in the atmosphere, there's usually a, a casing that gets ejected once it reads, re goes above the atmosphere. Um, and I guess that's coming back down. And luckily it's not staying up as space junk, which is good. Uh, the problem is that these pieces of space junk are landing in people's essentially backyards. Uh, and making a big mess, a huge mess, and an international incident uh, on top of that, because, of course, these are being launched from the United States, and then these are making large booms and implanting themselves very rudely <laughs> in people's farmlands, um, and they're just waiting for SpaceX to, you know, take notice, come pick up their space junk, and be on their merry way. Um uh, and yeah, this is this is an issue. We're, we're seeing more and more launches uh, every week. There's a new new launch, and you know, with every launch, there's going to be some debris, I suppose. Uh, or with most launches, I should say, there's going to be some kind of debris. And it, it, you know, we just sort of assume <laughs> that it'll you know not cause any problems when it burns up and lands. But apparently, uh, large pieces do come down and they will not only sort of make a ruckus, they will hit with enough force to, to basically um, embed themselves in the surrounding dirt. So even just trying to remove this space junk is a big hassle. And thank God it has never hit anybody, which is something we mentioned before. Like there's a, like a 1% chance in the next decade that a space junk is going to hit someone and kill somebody. Like, like we need to figure out what to do about falling space junk. Like how to design it so it's less dangerous and less international incidenty. <laughs> yep. Now I know natural meteorites hit people now and then too. That that is true. Except you know when 
a natural meteorite hits someone, that's of course a, a sort of an act of God. That's right. Uh, but when uh, an artificial satellite hits someone, that could be construed as negligence. Yeah, yeah. Then you have somebody to sue. Right. All right. And uh, Brian Chapman, a friend of mine, sent me this article. Um, researchers have tested 3,200 mobile apps, and they just tested them for having hard-coded API keys in the code, which you can see, or putting those in environment variables where you can just retrieve them from the phone, and they're leaking out Twitter keys. They figured out what the Twitter API keys you need, and apparently that many apps are just leaking Twitter keys. Leaking API keys is a really common flaw in mobile applications. They hard code them in, um, thinking nobody can see the raw numbers in there, but anybody can, with just a little bit of reverse engineering. So uh, I'll be, I think I'm teaching this class again next semester. So I might throw this in the project, looking for API keys as an easy task of uh, doing a security audit of a mobile app. And so uh, I'm not surprised to see this, but uh, we certainly need to continue the research exposing this. We really need people to start taking the top 10 OWASP API, you know, OWASP vulnerabilities and addressing them in web apps and mobile apps and everything, but we're very far from that. We've been talking for a decade or more about some kind of UL seal of approval where you would get software and hardware that had somehow been rated to not have like the most obvious security flaws. And as far as I know, we still don't have that for anything. We somehow keep talking about it and somehow it never seems to happen. So anyway, mobile apps continue to be pretty messed up. And so that's it for this one. And we'll be back on Friday.